Hello and welcome to another episode of the Switch Focus Podcast. This is episode 6. I'm Andy Corrigan and with me once again is Jeannie Wu. Hey, how's it going? And Andrew Brown. Hey, how are you doing? How's your week been? Pretty great, actually. Care to elaborate? Oh, you know, just great releases. We're going to talk about them. Of course. And you, Jeannie? Uh, yeah, can't complain. Haven't had any wisdom teeth taken out since the last extraction, so it's all blue skies from here. That's always nice. So let's move on to updates from last week's episode. So thanks to a a friend of the show who pointed out that we were perhaps pronouncing Picross wrong. We were calling it Picross. Uh, I'm going to take the high ground here and say that it's completely Andrew's fault because I'd never played it or heard anyone say it before. How is this the high ground? I was lying. Are you being facetious? Yes. What's your defense? My defense is, first of all, I'd never heard it said out loud either. And second of all, I can read, I understand grammar, and that is pronounced pie cross. Uh, I guess it makes sense, though, because it's a combo of pick and cross. But I, I did a, a Google search just to make sure before we added this to the show notes, and there are pages and pages of people arguing this. This is my actual stance on it. It doesn't matter. Play the game. Uh, now, if you stuck to the end of last week's episode, you might have heard my little Easter egg in the outro. That did, in fact, mean that I beat Golf Story like shortly just after recording episode 5. That was a very happy moment indeed. Uh, Ginny, are you there yet? Have you finished this? Um, I have not finished it. That is a work in progress. But I've also been really occupied by the new stuff that came out this week. I know it's not an excuse, but honestly, like it took me three hours just to do that one disc golf segment, like halfway through the game. And like that was sort of the thing that made me sort of like put the brakes on my golf story experience so I'm only like just picking it back up and trying to grind through the rest of the end um hopefully there's less disc golf please that there be less disc golf uh, there, there is a trick to beating disc golf it's and uh, now both me and Andrew did this it's that you have to tweet about how bad it is and then it'll suddenly click and you'll beat it straight away that works for lots of things actually Pro tip. <laughs> but I, I do agree with you, Jenny. The the disc golf especially, but there's also uh, drone golf that you play later on. No. <laughs> I don't understand why those were in the game. Uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to talk about this last week, but I, I felt I was being way more negative about the game than I was really feeling. But all these side activities that are not golf... I don't understand why they are there. They are not fun and they add nothing. See, I enjoyed drone golf. Uh, the disc golf, le- less so, but, you know, it's a nice break. There's, there is a lot of, like, traditional golf in this, so I think it's nice just to take a breather and do something else for a while. On on the subject of me struggling with that final round last, last week, I think I was trying too hard because this, this time when I beat it, I was uh, just watching TV while playing it mindlessly. Um, and then, satisfyingly, I also won with a birdie on the final hole, which was, you know, isn't that what sport's all about? Nice. Golf clap. Golf clap. <laughs> Thank you. I'm clapping in polite disinterest. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the other thing, I said that I replayed SteamWorld Dig 1 and then picked up the sequel. So I, I played through the entirety of that this week. I'm really glad I gave Dig 1 a go because I wouldn't have played this without it. Also, I like the setup of this, how it follows on from the first one. I know that I know it's not a really story-heavy game, but I really appreciated how you played a character from the last game who was hunting for the protagonist from the first game. I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, I agree with what uh, Andrew said a few episodes back about how much more expansive the map is, whereas like the first one takes you straight down, this one takes you in several directions. 
and those paths can be a bit of a puzzle in themselves, which definitely makes things a lot more interesting than the first one, especially in the digging segments. I also think that the pacing is like pitch perfect as it switches you between the digging and then puzzle platforming sections. The rate at which they give you the new abilities is really cool. You, you get really mobile really quickly and then they let you improve those abilities as you see fit. Uh, and it's just got this really addictive gameplay loop, especially with the digging stuff where you're just collecting the gems as you're on your way somewhere, then you run back up to spend spend your goods. Yeah, it re- really grabbed me. And I, I finished it just yesterday. I haven't 100%ed it. I rarely do that with any game. Uh, but it felt a decent length and probably one of the best indie games I've ever played. I don't know if I would go that far. Um, I, I, I don't know. I need a lot of time before I'll call a game the best game I've ever played. So I'm, I'm not there yet. Talk to me again in December. Okay, now, the big one that none of us had time to play last week, Stardew Valley. Yeah. Yay. So you've all had time to play this, this yes, time? Yes, we I'm have. I'm halfway through my first fall now. I've spent quite a bit of time with it. I've, I've spent one night on it. The first thing I want to mention is that I really love the setup, the, uh, the way how your character is... Just working in this corporate office, really depressed. It's got an obvious, like, oppressive office atmosphere. And then you open the letter that your dying grandfather gave you, and it's basically the deeds to the farm. And he tells you to go live your life and connect with people, because that's what life is really about. Um, Now, I know, Ginny, you work in law, right? Yes, I do. (laughs) I work in IT. What do you do, Andrew? I don't know. I work in accounting. So I work, oh, in a, damn. I work in a cubicle farm just like that one. So we're all office workers. Yeah. So I think... And I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't speak for that. I'm, I'm in IT, uh, and I, I certainly can appreciate the appeal in jacking in the safe job and just disappearing somewhere. Back in England, uh, previous job, I, I often thought about just not paying my bills one month and just getting a ticket to anywhere and seeing where life took me. Kind of did that in emigrating to move here, but yeah, in a very different way though. Uh, what do you guys make of that that intro? Yeah, I thought it was, um, I thought it was what I needed at the time, so I picked up Stardew Valley, kind of last year, um, when I was like in between jobs. Obviously, this isn't the Switch version. But I picked it up like sort of in between jobs and I kind of that feeling really resonated with me the whole like oh you know anything could change at any time you should sort of really go and do what you want to do and that was what sort of I guess hooked me into the game because while I love games like Harvest Moon and Animal Crossing and Story of Seasons and stuff like that those don't really have much of a um, an engaging narrative or like a mature narrative if that makes sense and I think Stardew Valley is sort of having that spin on things. You're not like a amorphous t- 10 to 12 year old blob of a child who just shows up in town somewhere. And then they're like, oh, this is your parents' farm. Um, I think having that motivation made it easier for me to get into the game and to keep playing the game at the start. And obviously, like, there are some crazy things that happen in Stardew Valley because of, like, commercialization and capitalism. So I think that that was a nice way of, like, tying all that stuff in and introducing the whole, like, creepy aspect of, I don't know, um, I guess the way people live their lives now. Like, completely disconnected from nature and stuff. Don't want to get too deep, but long story short, I liked it and I thought it was a good thing and a nice way of introducing people to a title 
Like, it was definitely, like, adult Harvest Moon, and that set the tone really well. I haven't played of uh, Harvest Moon or the Story of Seasons slash Rune Factory thing that it's evolved into in a long time, but I do remember the original Harvest Moons. They did begin with you arriving on the farm with a letter from your granddad saying, here's a farm, you own it now. Thanks, granddad. Uh... So this is basically expanding on the narrative that's implied there and actually introduces a villain into the piece, which I kind of appreciate. It gives you something to work against rather than just something to work towards. Or if you choose, you can side with the villain, but you're human scum if you do that. So I appreciate that aspect of the game very much. Now, when everyone talks about Stardew Valley, they always talk about it in terms of this like super relaxing farm game. But I'm finding it really complex as well. Like, there's a lot of complexity to knowing knowing when to grow things, when to fish for certain types of fish. That fishing game is just outright bad, by the way. <laughs> and I think that sort of seasonal stuff might kill it in the long term for me. But it does it does sort of straddle that line between relaxing and, and complexity at the same time, don't you think? Have you played a Harvest Moon before? <laughs> uh, I I have not. Okay. Well, I have, so I knew exactly what to expect and all the planting cycles and everything. So I don't know if I'm being overwhelmed or not, or if I'm just used to the cycle. I'm not overwhelmed by it at all, or if I am overwhelmed by it, I don't notice it anymore because I've been doing it for so long. Yeah, I mean, like Andrew, I played a lot of those older games. Um, Like I said, I've just, you know, spent years and years of my life on things like Harvest Moon. And so the systems in Stardew Valley felt very natural. Um, I wouldn't say that the difficulty is inaccessible. Like, I don't think it sort of puts new people off. I'm not sure if you'll still feel the way that you feel now about the game in a couple of weeks, Andy, because I really think that Stardew Valley does a good job of introducing everything that you need to do slowly. Like, it doesn't punish you if you get the crops wrong or if you grow beans when you should be growing pumpkins or something. So I think that the learning curve... Um, in terms of the agricultural stuff is gentle enough that I hope that people won't be put off by it. Obviously, personally, as someone who has played a lot of these simulation games, like Andrew, I don't find it difficult. But I think it'll be cool to see how people who are new to these kinds of games feel after they've had a couple of months or weeks with the game and they've gone through all these different cycles, if that repetitiveness turns them off. I'm, I'm, I sort of liken it to how I felt in Minecraft for the first time, where there's just a lot lot of systems to discover and you don't automatically know what everything does. Mm, yeah. yeah. I think Stardew Valley is much clearer on what your goals are, though, so that might actually make the player feel more lost because you know what you're supposed to be doing, you just you don't know how to do it. Whereas in Minecraft, at least my experience is, I don't know how I'm supposed to be doing the thing I don't know what to do. How are you finding the energy mechanic? I, I find you blast through your daily energy pretty quickly if you cut down a few trees. Mm-hmm. And then it punishes you if you don't get back to your house in time and you fall asleep and someone takes you home and robs you. <laughs> Harvest Moon worked exactly the same way. So I yeah. I, I actually appreciated Stardew Valley because it actually shows you a bar with your energy remaining. And Harvest Moon, at least the ones I've played, you have to guess. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, you look like really ashen and pale, and the game's like, you're about to pass out. And I'm like, what do you mean? I walked like a mile, maybe. <laughs> uh, and and now you'll, uh, you might be able to ease my concerns with this one, but there's like 
so many people to meet and I just hope there's some sort of like character growth on their part the more you play is that is that the case that's that's the sort of vibe I'm getting from it yeah it really is um some of the more ornery characters that are like get lost like I don't know who you are you're super uncool like they will open up as you talk to them and you go through the I guess the friendship mechanics that come with lots of these games so like gifting them things spending time with them doing certain things in certain sort of in-game events so they definitely do introduce more of the sort of world building character narrative stuff the longer you play but it can take some time yeah shane's a jerk so far (laughs) yeah screw that guy seriously (laughs) (laughs) i've got a controversial take on it Uh, (laughs) what's the take i want to hear it okay this goes back to harvest moon as well i i i'm really not a fan of the message the game seems to send with the time limit uh, and I would really prefer if Harvest Moon and Stardew Valley combined did not have a time limit on it because I know it's in there to give you a goal to work towards so you, you can actually say you've beaten the game because you made the ghost of your grandpa happy by doing all the things, but the things are like you have to have a successful farm and you have to have made a certain amount of money, and you have to be married, and you have to have a kid, and in Harvest Moon, you have to be heterosexual and have a kid. It's just, I'm just not a fan of the message that that is sending, that you have to have all of this done by a certain time of your life, and then you've won. It's like, well, what about after that? Life continues beyond that point. You haven't won, you're just in the next step of your life. So that's, that's partly... A limitation of what the game provides but because the game you can't make a game that encompasses an entire life you just can't do it there's not enough time in the world to make that kind of game but you still make a game that has a specific message in it through the gameplay and that is the message that i'm seeing in harvest moon and to a less conservative extent in stardew valley but it still exists there and I'm being as old as I am now, I, I'm pretty critical of that. I'm not so much concerned about the whole... Like, I understand that that is not, like, a great message to send to young people. That they need to have, like, one and a half dogs <laughs> and a husband and, like, three cows in a farm um, to be happy. So I think that is a very archaic message, 100%. Um, but I think for me, what Stardew Valley... One gripe I guess I have about the game is that they don't take that sort of weird like creepy capitalism cult subplot further like i think that would have made endgame more interesting um for those people that don't know what i'm talking about um you've got a lot to look forward to um but i think that it does a good job of introducing these themes like capitalism and you know like depression and dealing with commercialization and like it's sort of like, does the whole like, oh, all those things are evil, like a far away evil that can't touch a small rural town. Um, I think it could have been better if they went further with that message um, and tried to make things like a little bit more weird, a little bit more spooky. And I think it's kind of gone balls to the wall in terms of what they could have done with the story. Um just because I think, like Andrew said, if we're going to do away with some of the constructs that the older, more conservative games had, like, you know, you had to be heterosexual to have a partner and stuff like that, I think Stardew Valley did made great strides in sort of just pushing that framework to the side and building on something new, but we could have just made it crazier. Like, I don't think people wanted 
um, story of seasons for adults per se. Like I think people that play those games will just go back and play them anyway. I think it could have really done a lot more in pushing a message that it hinted at. So that's my two cents. Shout out to any listeners who bought their copy of Stardew Valley on Amazon. Good job. Okay, so let's move on to the latest Switch news. So it seems every week we've got a new story about how indie games are selling the best on the Switch. Uh, this week we've had Neurovoido, which sold more in one month on Switch than in 18 months on Steam. Uh, and The Flame in the Flood sold more on Switch day one than any other platform day one. It's uh, it's pretty cool. You can see why all the indies are flocking to the device now, I think. It's kind of amazing for these games as well, because they're both... like older games and they've sold really really well on switch uh and people are definitely going to spend their money on the switch so i can't help but feel they've still got a less to compete with on switch than they're doing on steam though which definitely helps a lot what do you guys make of the these these new stories i think it was in the interview with our developer last week that they said that there's a whole market of people on the Switch who have never actually had an opportunity to play an indie game before, and that might be where this audience is coming from, who are spending as much as they are on these games on launch day. Uh, I know later on in this episode, we're going to hear from David Amador, who developed Quest of Dungeons. Uh, he also reports that he sold more on Switch in the first month of its release than he did on any other platform. I don't really have a definitive explanation for this. I'm the worst person to ask about the activities of a consumer. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm happy that it's going as well as it is. Yeah, I'm of a similar mind as Andrew in terms of, I guess, the explosion, quote-unquote, in people picking up, I guess, these small tiles on the Switch. I think... The Switch eShop is just convenient. Like, it's centralized all these really good indie releases. Um, Nintendo News has been good at putting out trailers and information about those games that you see whenever you log on to your Switch. You know, it's like, what's coming up next and stuff like that. And I think having all those convenient things collated into one place means that even if you were really only going to buy, I don't know, NBA 2K18 or something, you might look over to the side and be like, oh, what's that on the eShop? And the way that everything's so nicely put together, like you could scroll through that for about an hour and check out all these games that you have, might have never heard of. And I think having everything so accessible is the main difference. Like it, the Switch has really, I think, become a console um, that indies can, can flourish with and flourish on. And I think that the support that they're getting, at least on the shop front wise, is kind of why we get these stories every week. Like, you know... And why games like Stardew Valley and Oxenfree shoot to the top of the eShop list so quickly is like a lot of these games aren't really new games. Um, they're games that have been out already. But it's just, I think, people that would buy second copies of these games love other indies. And so that will, I think, having all the indies in one place sort of encourages that consumerism. Yeah, now we were going to talk about this a bit later on, but I think it fits in pretty well with this conversation. On this, do we think that the stores get, could get a bit oversaturated? Because I don't think it, this the current layout is sustainable for that much longer. Because the amount of games that is releasing every week, and there is a lot of games coming out, it pushes something else off the 
the first list in the storefront. Both the Wii U and 3DS stores did a, a fantastic job of making you aware of games, uh, like even long after release, because they do like, you know, like, hey, here's a bunch of RPGs you might not have played, icons and things like that. Do you think we're reaching a point where the eShop needs to be reinvigorated, at least visually, just to try and maintain everyone getting a fair, fair piece of the cake when it comes to like advertising space or, or real estate, I guess? Um, yeah, I think so. I think we're kind of hitting around that time. I don't know if when the Switch first launched, I would have thought that there would be this many games on it, but I think obviously time has proven most of us wrong. And I think that some of the older indie or smaller titles like Death Squared, um, which came out, I guess, the week that the Switch launched, basically, are now you know pushed all the way to the bottom because the Switch eShop shows you things chronologically. And obviously there's still a market for all those indie games and all those other games that were released at the very start, and they're all really playable and should be played. But I think if we're getting, what, two or three new games every week, we definitely need a shop revamp, even if it's just categories. You know, like you mentioned a bunch of RPGs, like couch co-op games or roguelites or anything. Like we just need some sort of categorization that way people can easily look for the kind of game that they want to play. I don't think the eShop is great right now where it's just showing everything in chronological order and then you got the bestsellers page and that's it because that really only gives a voice to games that have sold well or just came out and most of the time there's a pretty strong crossover between those two factors. But at the same time, I don't really know what a great solution is because when I look at something like Steam or the PlayStation Network Store, where the only games I ever see on it are games that it's actually showing to me. I, like, I, I, don't, I couldn't even tell you how to browse those stores for games. I, I don't know how to do it. And I think the Switch eShop is working better for me as far as those things go, but as far as making it better... I wouldn't know how to do it. Uh, uh, my best idea would be you played this game. Maybe you should try this game too. I think that would probably be a good thing to add to it. But it needs a revamp, but I don't. I couldn't begin to tell you how to do it. Ginny mentioned Death Squared there, uh, and that was actually on sale like last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you wouldn't even know unless you actually were following the news channel for Death Squared or you jumped in and just searched for it you just happen upon oh hey it's on sale um so i I think that's a bit of a shame yeah i mean if i were to if i were to deduce nintendo's thinking on this i think it would be the same idea they have with the voice chat where nintendo does not see their platform as a a portal to be explored uh, and to be used as far as these things it thinks that if you're going to learn about these games you're going to learn about it on a website or you're going to learn about it on social media or through word of mouth. I don't think they're thinking that the eShop is going to be a resource for shoppers. It's just a a way to access these things to buy them once you know you want it. I think there's also probably an element of them not knowing or not being able to tell how, quite how well the Switch was going to take off for developers. Yeah. So so like it seems very much a system designed for uh, a console that has just a you know, like a handful of games coming out every couple of weeks, and now it's it's quickly become this very oversaturated market. Uh, and yeah, I think it's it's just you know if developers aren't already 
telling them about it, I'd be surprised, and I'd be surprised if they weren't aware. So I, I think a revamp will be on the cards. It's just what shape does that take? I mean, I feel sorry for the developers. It's not working out for them, but like we are getting reports. We've already talked about with people selling more on Switch than they have on any other platform. So it's clearly working in some way. Let's move back to news then. So uh, the Switch might be getting its first uh, Battle Royale game with Crazy Justice. So this is like a cartoony looking game from Black Riddle Studios with quote unquote massive multiplayer. Looks to have some sort of building element so you can block up choke points with fences and build build defences and things like that. They're currently running a FIG crowdfunding campaign and the Switch version looks like it's one of their stretch goals. It looks interesting, looks pretty solid. You guys took a look at the video? I glanced at it. I, I rarely have the time or the ability to watch an entire video. Uh, I prefer to read things. But I was just more interested in this story just because... We're getting another fad genre on the Switch. We're getting the MOBA later on this year, and now we may be getting a Battle Royale game. But I have the same comment about this one that I made about uh, that MOBA that's coming out. Is okay, great, we're getting one. That's good. That's going to meet a market demand. But I'm really more interested to see what Nintendo would do with this genre. But it's probably be years before we see that. Games like that i guess with that sort of mode not really my style i mean i like multiplayer games um i like things like overwatch and i also play mobas like league of legends but um just haven't quite cottoned on to that you know PUBG feel and that doesn't really appeal to me so my interest level is incredibly low um for a game like this but um it looks good um and it looks like it runs well, at least from the footage we've seen so far, but it's not something that I'm very keen on. I think, like Andrew said, it's great that there are these other more popular, I guess, genres and fad fads that are appearing on the store. I think that will help the mainstream appeal of the Switch and help enhance that. But personal interest um, in terms of whether or not I would play a game like this or care really about a game like this, not so much. Also coming to Switch is Serial Cleaner, which is a super stylish looking stealth game from Curve Studios. You play an underworld cleaner, the type that clears bodies before they're discovered. Looks like you're running around from a top-down perspective and you're avoiding vision cones as you do in all the the old-fashioned style stealth games. Either of you take a look at this one? Yeah, I had a look. Um, I've actually played a bit of it on the PC, so... Um, I will pick it up again. I think it's going to handle great on the Switch. Um, And I think for people that enjoy, like you said, the sort of retro feel of old school stealth games, it really is a great homage to that. And it does look amazing. Um, Everything from the music to the graphics sort of emulates, I guess, like a... um, a Hollywood version of the 70s. I think it's really interesting. I think it's good that you have a game like this, which obviously isn't taking itself very seriously. I mean, it is a play on, you know, serial killing, but I think the whole, like, being the janitor instead of being the guy that does the whole Hotline Miami shoot up the bodies bit before the cleaner gets there is something new. And it looks cool. I'll probably play it again. I might actually finish it this time if I buy it on the Switch, because that's sort of been 
my thing with games recently is I just feel like I've, I make a lot more time for them when I've got them on the Switch. So I'm going to pick it up again, and I'm looking forward to it. I've seen pictures of it. Uh, I saw the announcements for it, and I, I have uh, gotten into the habit on Switch games of learning very little about it, then going, yeah, I'll buy that. And that is exactly what I did with this. <laughs> Maybe I'll have more to say about it once it actually comes out. And now let's move on to this week's releases. Let's go through the list. We've got a, a smaller list than last time, obviously, with us not having a week off in between. So out this week was Neon Chrome, Square Boy vs. Bullies Arena Edition, which looks like a, a kind of 16-bit side-scrolling beat-em-up. King of Fighters 95, another Neo Geo game. Finally, 88 Heroes, 98 Heroes Edition hits the store. Unbox Newbie's Adventure, which looks like a 3D platformer stroke multiplayer racing thing. Uh, and then the ones we've actually bought and played, which are The Flame in the Flood, Wolverblade, and Yono and the Celestial Elephant. So let's start with uh, Yono and the Celestial Elephant. I was always going to buy this because it, it looks very Zelda. And I love Zelda, but I have not had a chance to play it. I understand Ginny's got it and has been absolutely loving it. Yep, I do have it, and yes, I do absolutely love it. Um, it is incredibly Zelda. Um, it's not a very long game. Um, I'm just going to put it out there. But it is very impressive that it all has been done by a one-person studio. So continuing that trend of um, indie games put out by one person, um, an incredible amount of work has gone into it. Um, it is 100% aware of its status as an homage to games like Zelda. So obviously, um, this is not a game that's going to reinvent the wheel. It has not done that at all. But it is a very sort of like methodically paced, um, very chilled out and very adorable puzzle game. Um I kind of like how it takes the regular Zelda mechanics and subverts them in some way. So instead of smashing pots per se and like chasing around enemies um, or, you know, killing a certain amount of things to unlock a hidden area or a puzzle or something, you're watering crops or you're picking up chickens and carrying them around or picking up porcupines and giving them a ride on your back. Um, I like that. Um, obviously, there's combat elements still. You can headbutt things to really get them out of your way. But I liked having, um, I like taking a pacifist approach. I feel like as a baby elephant, um, I think it's probably in your character's nature to not be violently headbutting things off cliffs or anything like that. Um, but it's cool. It's got a nifty story, um, which you need to put some time into to actually fully unlock. Like it's, it by no means sort of drags you through anything long and convoluted. Um, I think it'll be a great game for kids. And it's also a great game for adults when to chill out. Um, it won't tax your brain but it is incredibly cute and everything seems very lovingly animated from the sounds to the running around to the way things move when you sort of interact with them. I love it, honestly. I'm full of praise for it. I'm going to get it, but I've already bought two games this week. I've got to beat at least one of them before I buy anything else, and I'd like to get some other stuff beaten too. So uh, I put that one on the back burner, but I will pick it up at some point. And next up is The Flame in the Flood. Now, I, ha I haven't played this on any format, and I wasn't even going to bother with it on Switch, surprise, surprise, despite really liking the look and the premise of it, the story of a, a girl and a dog in a, a flooded post-apocalyptic world. I've always read about the roguelike elements, and I've said before I'm not big on roguelikes, 
But then I saw you say recently that the roguelike stuff is completely optional. Yeah, I don't know why. This was the first I'd ever heard of this game was when it was announced for Switch last week. And all I heard about it was, oh, it's a roguelite, it's a roguelite, it's a roguelite. I don't know why that's all people are reporting on it, because it's not just a roguelite. The roguelite is the hard mode. Uh, and there's also uh, an endless river mode where you can just see how long you can go, even past the end of the game. And those are both roguelites, but there's a core campaign that has, it's all procedurally generated, but there's checkpoints and there's hard saves and you can fall back if you die and start over without losing all your progress and having to start from scratch. I think we're starting to fall into that trap where we're using a word so much we're forgetting what it means. Procedurally generated does not mean roguelite. Yeah, so there, there's a, an in-depth story in this one, because that, that's what I was really hoping for. I'm not that far in it myself. It just came out Thursday, and I've been double-teaming it between the other game we're going to talk about. But the story doesn't seem to be that in-depth. Um, the characters are completely silent, so it'll, the story all has to be told in pantomime. Uh, at the start... You play as this girl named Scout, who's rescued by a dog named either Aesop or Daisy, depending upon which dog you choose to take with you. And they give you a radio, and the radio, I guess, is summoning her to safety. Uh, I haven't actually gotten to the point where you can listen to the radio, because that's the first goal, is get somewhere where you can actually hear, clearly hear the message that's coming through it. But you're going through this whole flooded area of the rural south in the united states so what i really enjoy about it is i think this might be the first video game i've ever played that actually could be accurately called uh southern gothic which is a genre of american literature set in the south obviously but with like lots of grotesque characters and lots of psychological horror going on basically literally gothic literature but set in the antebellum south it looks really interesting i just haven't had time though between the games that have come out this week and i really hope it slows down soon <laughs> yeah we need time to catch up i'm hoping we're gonna have the first half of 2018 to catch up on stuff but we'll see that was my plan for 2017 too and that did not happen so <laughs> <laughs> There's still so many games that I haven't played on other formats as well that I need to... Uh, where do you find the time? And lastly, we're going to talk about Wolverblade. This is one that Andrew was looking forward to ever since the first episode of the podcast. Uh, so it's a side-scrolling beat-em-up. I'm generally not into those, but I was really drawn in by the cartoony art style and the historical elements they've been uh, touting in the, the marketing. Uh, and it's uh, super interesting. It's based around British clans defending the north from invading Romans and the, the southern clans that declare for them. It's mostly a one attack button game, but if you pick up a weapon, you can use that as well. So it's occasionally a two button attack game. And it requires a lot of finesse in terms of dodging and blocking. Uh, how are you finding it, Andrew? Well, like you, I was drawn to it mostly because of the art style, I thought, in that Nindy Direct they put out back in July, I guess that was now that that came out. I thought it was like the one that really stood out from all the other ones is looking like something really unique as far as what's going out on the Switch. And it definitely stands up for that. The art style really pops. Um... 
it, it all looks hand drawn, but it's really big, bold, and with thick lines and colors that stand out. Even though it's actually got a pretty drab color palette, uh, the the animation is kind of kind of funny looking because like their mouths move, but their eyes just kind of stare forward, so they look a little dead. <laughs> but I I think that's just part of the art style. So uh, that's not really a criticism; it's just an observation. Uh, but I'm not great at the beat-em-up genre. It's not a type of game I actively seek out. It, there's got to be something special to it that will make me do so. Like Castle Crashers, I think, was the last one I played, and now it's 10 years ago now that that came out. Uh, and this one definitely stands on its own in that genre. Uh, actually, I could be entirely wrong about that, because, again, I don't play beat-em-ups, but I was uh, surprised at how important blocking is because... When you're fighting enemies, there'll be a blue exclamation point that appears above their heads, and if you don't block, like, as soon as it appears, they're going to hit you, and they're going to hit you pretty dang hard. And if they got friends, you're probably screwed. And there's also a dodge roll mechanic, which is just absolutely essential. The The third boss I, requires basically mastery of this dodge roll ability, and I have not gotten past him yet. I've come very close. I'm stuck at the same point, uh, but been playing it all morning. One criticism I have is that I don't think it does an amazing job of teaching you those mechanics. Yeah, it doesn't. Like, I I only realized there was a remedy to being surrounded by enemies because of a loading screen tip, but then that tip also didn't tell me that the ability to clear enemies also reduces your health slightly. <laughs> well, that's pretty standard for this. I think I know Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 and 3 on NES had a similar ability, So and it also drained your health. So I think that's just a standard mechanic. Maybe they're just assuming everybody who plays these games already knows this, which is why you shouldn't assume those things. But uh, yeah, everything I've learned about the game, I've also learned from the loading screen, except for one thing, which it tells you how to run by double tapping left or right on the movement pad, which is great. You can do that. An easier way to do it is just to hold down the right shoulder button, which does the same thing and is less mechanically demanding and is easier to pull off and much faster and you can also dodge roll by double tapping the right shoulder button and no loading screen tells you this and it makes the game a heck of a lot easier to play so i'm not even sure why that double tap mechanic is there when there's already a redundancy built in that works better um i also wish the checkpoints were a bit kinder maybe just before bosses because basically it checkpoints halfway through and you have to go through a couple of stages before you get to the boss. So if you die during the boss, you have to go all the way back to the other point. It's pr- it's pretty brutal on its difficulty. And there's a campaign mode where you can play each level one at a time. That's great. And then there's also an arcade mode where you have to beat the whole game with three lives. Good luck. Now, it also gives you more mechanics. So I'm playing as Karadok. Yeah, so I'm playing as too. I thought I would play as the other characters after I've beaten it. I really want to play as the girl too because she reminds me of Lagatha from Vikings, who is awesome. Uh, but I'd like to think I'll play with all three characters eventually if I can beat it. It seems tough going at this point. It's probably just a learning curve. I think once you've gotten through it with Caradoc, then you can probably get through it pretty easily with the other two characters as well, even though they have different strength and strengths and weaknesses. There's a lot of cool little uh, details in the combat system. Have you knocked many people onto spikes yet or into fires? That's that's pretty cool. Yeah, I've gotten the achievement for knocking people into fire because I'm, I'm a terrible person. <laughs> yeah, I got one call. I got one called Impaler, which was pretty nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's because I found an area where I could channel all the waves of enemy into this tiny little doorway so I could just beat up on them and they just kept getting 
getting knocked onto it. It was pretty funny. That's how I got the fire achievement. <laughs> now, although it, it goes on about the the history aspect, there's a, there's a lot of history in it. You can collect notes where it tells you about the the background behind it. There's a narrator constantly telling you things that happened in, as part of this battle. And you, there's like log files for every weapon that you pick up, which is kind of cool. But it does very, very clearly qualify that at the beginning by saying that this is one of those legends that was never properly told. Did you catch that? I think I did. You know, I, I think the fact that your character's special ability is to summon a pack of wolves to attack the army for you pretty safely puts this in the realm of fantasy. So uh, there's historical details in there, but I don't think anybody's going to mistake this for literally being true. Uh, do the other characters have unique abilities? I get the impression that they are all just got the wolf army they can attack with, but that may not be the case. I haven't played as the other two characters yet. Uh, and there's the rage mechanic as well, where it, it helps you heal, heal your health. They all have the rage mechanic, I'm sure of that. Ah, okay, cool. Yeah, but uh, as, as tough as it is, I'm really enjoying it so far. Uh, and thanks to the uh, wonderful PR people, we have a European code to give away in a competition. We're going to put some details up on our website soon, so be sure to check out that. And now it's time to move on to Developer Focus, where this week, Andrew had a chance to talk to Quest of Dungeons developer David Amador. Hello and welcome to Developer Focus on the Switch Focus podcast. Today we are joined by David Amador of Upfall Studios, whose video game Quest of Dungeons launched on the Switch on September 14th. Hello David, how are you doing today? Hello Andrew, I'm doing fine, thank you. Now, regular listeners have already heard what I thought about Quest of Dungeons in episode 3 of the podcast. Could you describe your game in your own words? So, Quest of Dungeons is a, a traditional uh, roguelike game. And what that means is that it has all those uh, core features that uh, the, the genre itself created, like permadeath. Each time you die, you have to start all over again. It has procedural dungeons, so each time you play, it's a new, a whole new game. And it has RPG elements and the the things we are used to on other RPGs, like leveling up, killing monsters. And what I tried to do was bring trying to create a game that even newcomers to the genre could quickly grasp all the features that the more traditional roguelikes have. Cool, yeah, I, I definitely felt that when I was playing it. It, uh, it reminded me of roguelike games, which I've played for years, but uh, definitely scaled down and simpler, easier to grasp. Like, uh, I don't have to go back to town constantly, which I don't miss at all. Uh, <laughs> ha- have you played rogue and roguelike games for a long time? Did you play the original when it was new? No, not original when it was new. No, I'm, I'm actually very new to the genre myself, and I think that's why I tried to... I, I love I love the way those games were made, and I played a couple ones that are more, so to speak, hardcore. Uh, but I think because I'm not ex- exactly uh, old, like a player that's been playing them for years. Well, now it's been a couple of years, but um, I, I get I got fascinated by all those things, but I wanted to make it more. Uh, easier to approach because a lot of my friends when I was trying oh you should try this game their response was I I think this is too hard I don't think this I think this is too complicated for me to get into Uh, so so yeah 
obviously Rogue was an inspiration. Were there any other video games or maybe developers that served as an inspiration for what you tried to do in Quest of Dungeons, or did it just spring fully formed from from your head? No, not no, not exactly. There's always inspiration. For, I think the the two mo- the ones that I got more was from Dungeons of Dreadmore. Uh, which is a game from 2011, I think. Um, and uh, 100 Rogues, 101 Rogues, 100 Rogues, which is a mobile game. So what I got from 100 Rogues was it's super fast to play. So you play it on a, a mobile device and it's it's just swiping and touching things with, uh, with your fingers. So it's really easy to get uh, how to play. What I tried to get from Dungeons of Dreadmore was that depth and that those mechanics and all that other stuff uh, so I tried to join them both in a way that felt different so to speak mm. so those were the two main games that I got inspiration from well apart from the the, the original ones those were the two modern rogues that I got inspiration from Moving on to the classes now, I, I understand where the warrior and the wizard came from. Those are very traditional RPG classes. You encounter them in almost any RPG you can play. But the other two classes that are open from the beginning are the assassin and the shaman, which I felt was kind of an unusual choice. What caused you to pick those two classes to be the third and the fourth, like your 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 thief class and your multi-class? Why were those the jobs that were chosen? So... Uh... One of the after I made the the other two are the like you said they're very traditional. There I, I didn't got many uh, freedom to make stuff up because people are expecting the warrior to be like the warriors are, and uh, the the assassin was introduced more like a, a more friendly class as it's a bit easier to play because of the range. I felt that, yeah. <laughs> That's how I usually play as the assassin. Yeah, so I, I, I thought of, about it in a more introduction. So it's still hard, but it, it's usually the easier one to get into. The shaman was the one that I created where I had most freedom. So it's it's my personal favorite, although a lot of people don't. It's not usually the, the, the public uh, favorite. But I got I got to do whatever I wanted with that class. So I mixed stuff from the warrior and the and the the, the wizard, uh, and I also tried to because there's some influence from Diablo on this game. I really like Diablo games, so I I got into mixing spells that I saw on other stuff and trying to make it more original because the other ones were pretty standard. So that was the choice. It wasn't. I, I actually played with a, a couple of other classes. Like uh, at at one point, there was a vampire. Yeah. But it it it, it felt true because uh, as I tried to play it, it, it was mostly in sp- um, getting blood and uh, removing health from the enemies, and the gameplay wasn't very fun with it. So oh. I tried a couple. Yeah, I ended up. I ended up uh, mixing some of these spells to the other classes, or even enemies. There's an enemy in the game that's a vampire. Oh, okay. Um, but, so I played with a couple others, but eventually... Uh, because my original goal was to have more classes. 
because there are rogues that have tons of classes, as you know. Mm-hmm. But I, I, as I started to create more, I realized that uh, it was better to have them more as distinct as distinct as possible, so that there's different gameplay with each one of the four. So you can play it. Each one of them plays very differently. So I realized it was better to have less and with a bit more diverse gameplay than having like 10 classes. Yeah, definitely. That's definitely a good way to go. But there is a fifth class that you can unlock, the Necrodancer. How did the Necrodancer get added to Quest of Dungeons and and what makes it distinct from the other classes that are already there? So the the Necrodancer was... uh, The original... When the game was released, the Necrodancer wasn't there. So this was the thing when I started making the game for consoles adding controllers and I added a bunch of content and one of the things that I wanted to do was a a new class but I was I I didn't had many ideas of what I could do to make it distinct from the other ones so I didn't want just one similar one so uh, I was playing Crypt of the Necrodancer and I thought it would be cool to have it on this game, like a cameo or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I talked to Ryan, the, the the creator of the 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 game, and he thought the idea was cool. I, I showed him I showed him my game, and I talked about what I wanted to do, and uh, and he said it was okay. I, I and I tried to make it a more a class that was harder to play than the other ones because mm-hmm. that's why it's unlockable so eventually <laughs> you players will finish the game and get good at it and it starts to get easier so that class is a bit unbalanced well it's balanced i balanced it but it's unbalanced compared to the other ones to make it harder on purpose sure. okay <laughs> uh, like a bonus no it, it's like a bonus so if you're if you find a lot of players eventually find the assassin too easy to play, right? right. So the the necro dancer was introduced to make it, it it makes the game harder to play. It makes the game a lot harder, and it was like a a small homage and uh, just a secret class. I don't even talk about it usually on the the. The, the press announcements uh, <laughs> it's just it's just something that most people play the game and they think okay it's this is it and they unlock the class and they know the other game so that was my goal to have like this small easter egg a playable easter egg so it, he's just there for fun yeah it's just there for fun you can play you can finish the game with it, 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 it there's some achievements it's possible to play the game but it, it's much harder so it's like a bonus thing that you want to Refin- you want to play the game again with extra challenge that's the way to go it's really nice how uh, all the indie developers are so open to uh, working together with other indie developers and mixing their work together like there's that Smash Brothers game that's coming out that has a bunch of indie characters in it instead of Nintendo characters and then meet Super Meat Boys full of things from other classes I, just, I really admire how you indie developers all band together and work together like that yeah, yeah, no. The the uh, everyone is super friendly. It's great. Uh, sometimes things don't. It's not possible to like making a a cameo or something like that. But everyone is always approachable. I just I just emailed with with Ryan. I just emailed him, 
And because both games were on the same genre and pixel art, it felt that, yeah, sure, that, that could work. It's not just mixing something that doesn't fit. It actually fits. Mm-hmm. Did, did he provide you with art assets or did you make them yourself? No, uh, he, he approved, like he, he got, he saw everything before releasing, but uh, that was made, uh, was made internally. So uh, he just approved, yeah, I like it or I didn't like it. Oh, great. Okay. And uh, just to our listeners, Crypt of the Necrodancer is due out on the Switch sometime soon. I don't think it has a release date yet, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, moving back to you. Uh, Quest of Dungeons has previously been available on the 3DS and the Wii U. Can you describe the development process of porting it to those systems? Yeah, sure. So um, the the Wii U version was relatively straightforward because I had the game. Uh, uh, it's similar to the PC version and uh, the other platforms. I just had to get something for the gamepad screen. I didn't just wanted to like uh, TV. Uh, off TV play so it has a map it has a touch inventory so that was the most uh, uh, hard thing so to speak it wasn't that uh, hard to make it but um, the most different thing about that version the 3DS version was a bit trickier because it's the 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 hardware is it's a lot slower, right? It mm-hmm. has the capabilities of that system are uh, so it's not it's not a, 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 a powerful device as a PlayStation or a Switch. So that took a lot of work. So I spent nearly I spent uh, a year working on both the Wii U and the 3DS version, but most of that time was on the 3DS, uh, mostly because of hardware uh, specs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was mo- other than that it was just having something that felt great for the, the, the touch screen I remade the, the whole UI to split it between the two screens so that's the, mo- the, the, the version that's most different from every uh, other one it's the 3DS if, I don't know if you ever saw any screenshots but it's actually very different so it, it splits between the two screens and you have a couple of different things because you don't have the same amount of buttons yeah. as uh, the the Wii U version uh, the new 3DS has the the ZR uh, four buttons shoulder buttons i think yeah. and the uh, stick but not the original uh, 3DS so i wanted to cover as much devices as possible so that took a, some tweaking to get the game there <laughs> Uh, but no, uh, other than that, it was just most of the, the things were harder for me because it was my first time working with Nintendo and those platforms, right? So I got I got in as a Nintendo developer with those versions. So mm-hmm. everything was new. So I, w- I kept, oh, so what, I, what do I do now, right? It, it was easier, for example, for the Switch because I knew how things worked internally with them. So I just had it. I just needed to port the game, but uh, it went well. It went well. Uh, the the 3D, like I said, the 3DS version was the tougher one. At one point, I thought I wasn't gonna be able to get it up and running the way I wanted. I remember just our curiosity. I don't want to extend this too much, but 
I remember the first time I was able to boot the game after several errors, the game ran like 10, 5 to 10 frames per second. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was super, it was really poorly optimized back then. And I thought, man, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to optimize this. It's going to be, but, uh, and this to speak of Nintendo. So they helped me a little bit uh, with that. They helped me pointing me on the right track. I remember I talked to them like, okay, so I'm having issues with performance. What should I do? And they said, okay, so you should go this way or that way. Uh, so they were really cool with that. So it sounds like you had a, a good relationship with Nintendo. I, I don't want you to jeopardize anything with them. So <laughs> I, I don't, I'm not asking you to badmouth them or anything. I'm just, was it a good relationship you had with them? Yeah, it was, it was. Um, no, I, uh, I'm not, uh, I know it's a tricky question, uh, but uh, I'm not just saying because uh, it really was. So they helped me because I had no idea of, from the the. The legal standpoint and uh, the technical standpoint, I had no idea how things worked. So I could send an email from, and they would reply and help me. They knew I was just one person. I remember we had that conversation at some point mm -hmm. uh, because uh, of some some things. But they helped me. So from technical things to marketing stuff, like, uh, I don't know, if I wanted to ask, how do, how do I put a trailer up on some, some place or... Sure. So they, so they were cool with that. Some things are possible, some things are not. As we know, they highly cover some indie games, others, it's not possible for all games, right? Uh, so they usually yeah. cover the ones that are more high profile, so, so to speak. But... For me, they were they they really helped a lot uh, to get on board with uh, all the things. And did they approach you about porting Quest of Dungeons to the Switch, or was that your idea? No, I it was my idea. I approached them uh, back. I, I I think I started to talk with them uh, before the release of the device, but after after the. After they made all those announcements about pricing and the the public ones, right? Uh, yeah. The, the the Nintendo Direct something. I started to talk to them, so it, it was me approaching them. It was not the other way around. Because to be honest, I just I had just released the game for Wii U and 3DS, so it wasn't as exciting as a new project, right? Other indie games have reported their games selling very well on Switch, often to the point of outselling how it's sold in other platforms. Uh, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but how has Quest of Dungeons sold on the Switch compared to other platforms? It's curious that you are talking about, because I just tweeted that uh, today, uh, the game, actually the game was released one month ago, exactly mm -hmm. one month ago. So I was checking that, and right now uh, it's the top-selling console platform. Oh, very good. It, yeah, it already caught up with the other ones. Good so, for you. Yeah, it, it, so it went well. It went well. Now, you, you talked earlier about wanting to add additional characters and, and the uh, obstacles that you ran into with that with, of making the characters seem less distinct by having too many characters in it. But are there additional expansions or additions you'd like to make to Quest of Dungeons? Do you want to add more mansions or maybe another difficulty level? Uh, has anything like that happening on the horizon that you see? I don't think so. I, I thought about it even now for the Switch uh, release. I juggled a couple of ideas, stuff that I have here, uh, like other um, versions that I never ended up making those ideas. But it's I think 
whenever I think about something, it's I don't think this has value to the game. I usually approach it mm. like that. Uh, I don't want it to feel like just adding stuff. Uh, and it it got to a point where you have if the player either likes the game or he doesn't, right? So it, the game has a lot of replayability at it as it is. So just mm. adding a mansion or different sprites, although it looks cool because you have v- different visuals, it's not exactly new things. Uh, so I'm not sure if I come up with something that I feel okay. This this could work. This could make something. This could. Uh, be a neat addition and it's different i'll do it but otherwise i don't have any idea right now there was one thing that i i tried again for the 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 switch release but uh it was kind of terrible was uh co-op oh yeah that i can't imagine how that would work in a turn-based game (laughs) yeah exactly that was the main problem a lot of people since the very first release a lot of people asked me co-op a lot of people ask for multiplayer, but that's uh-huh. not really possible with this one. But a lot of people ask me, oh, so a local co-op game. Uh, but And I tried, and, it, and with the Switch, it was the perfect because you have the Joy-Cons. You could detach and give it to someone else. But it doesn't work. It really doesn't work because you it's turn-based. It's, uh-huh. I, I approached with several kind of tweaks and... But it wasn't fun. I was trying with a friend and eventually told me, can I just, can you give me a Switch so I can play it by myself? Because it, it's not fun to play it like this. So I was like, <laughs> yeah, though, not, not, uh, it, there's no point in doing it. And, and I imagine, uh, because if I, announcing the Switch version with co-op, people would be focusing on the co-op. And if it was, if, if it sucked, it would be terrible. <laughs> so I didn't made, made it. Well, I think it's a great game, so I think clearly you made the right choice. Uh, are there are there any projects that you are considering for the horizon, or is it all just quested dungeons from now on? No, no, it's not. I'm I'm starting to work on something new. It's it's really early to tell if this is the project because I'm I'm exper- making experiments right now. Sure, uh, it's really early to tell if the one I'm working right now will eventually become a full product, a full game. But right now, no, I'm not. Quest of Dungeons is on uh, support, kind of. If it needs patching, I released a patch the other day, or uh, some kind of thing that breaks. I'll still, I'll keep supporting it, but not working anymore, like uh, porting to something else or adding content. It's not on that stage anymore. It's just, I, I'm moving to something else. Thanks so much for joining us on Switch Focus, David. Um, Thank you. Uh, and Quested Dungeons is available on the eShop, as well as many other platforms, including Wii U, 3DS, multiple consoles, and Steam for, I believe, $14.99 US. Now, if people want to follow you and your additional updates for Quested Dungeons and for your future projects, where could they follow you at? So they can follow on, uh at the social networks, uh, twitter.com uh, slash Upfall Studios. Facebook is the same, Upfall Studios. So facebook.com mm-hmm. slash uh, Upfall Studios. There, or if they go to questofdungeons.com, there's all sorts of links over there from the stores to the social media links. They can follow it there and the blog. So usually between Twitter, Facebook, or the blog site, they can get the latest information. Thanks for joining us, David. Thank you for the invitation.
Okay, and that was a great interview there, Andrew. Thank you. Now let's move on to listener questions. Both questions come from the the same guy this time, which is uh, TricksterL from Twitter. He asks, first off, do we think that the Switch is becoming the de facto home for indie releases? Uh, I think that all these new stories about games selling best on, on the Switch, or at least launching best on the Switch suggest so what do you guys think yeah i think so as well i think i touched on it briefly when i talked about the whole e-shop situation and about indie games and the coverage that they get now so i'm definitely in that camp where i think that the switch has been a console that's been a lot more supportive of these smaller releases at least um so far and like i said i think i think the accessibility of having just all these titles together um, has contributed to that popularity of those titles in turn. So I think there's a good symbiotic relationship set up. So yes, basically is my answer. I don't know about de facto home, but I think the Switch is becoming an extremely attractive home to indie developers because clearly the games sell well on it, but what Nintendo indicated to us before this deluge started last month was they were actually curating titles, so I took that to mean that they're being fairly selective about what's coming out. And based on the quality of what we've seen so far, that would seem to be the case. So I think people thinking, I'm making an indie game, it's going to be on the Switch, it's going to be fantastic. I think they're going to be surprised if that's what they're assuming, because... I really do think when we're looking at what indie games are on the Switch, we're seeing the cream of the crop. And if you are going to be part of the chaff, you're going to be on Steam. Cream of the crop, physical contact games, honestly. Well, obviously there's going to be some bad titles. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not part of the process that decides what appears on there. But I think by and large, if you go down the list of what's on the Switch pretty amazing titles so far that's true i was just being facetious we need to quit doing that it's my way what can i do i had my sarcasm gland removed i i can't tell <laughs> when people are doing it Trickstrail again also asks do you any of you carry a battery pack for your switch on the go uh no i don't but i do have a USB-C cable in my bag at all times so i can charge it at work if i take it to work um, I don't take a battery pack with me. Um, my commute's not long enough. <laughs> um, but like Andy, I do bring a charger to work so I can charge it. So, same boat. I do not, and I am, well, this goes to my thing with the touchscreen too. I'm very persnickety about my Switch, and I will only plug it into the charger it came with or the dock. Uh, I'll tell you why. I had a laptop for a long time and I fried the battery on it by using a third party charger on it because I didn't know any better and I talked to the tech guys at work about that and said oh yeah that's pretty common and I said well I got this new tablet am I going to have the same problem with that if I just use any old charger on it and they said no you should be able to use any charger you want on that it won't matter so I, I for years used a cell phone charger on it because it's not supposed to make a difference and then not too long ago I found out that I'm actually swelling the battery inside my tablet and if I keep doing that it's eventually going to explode so I don't know a lot about hardware as I've said in the past on here but I want my switch to last 
So if Nintendo does not make it, I am not plugging my Switch into it. Again, don't forget you can send your questions and responses to our Twitter feed at SwitchFocusPod or our Facebook account or via our website and its handy contact form. Okay, that's nearly it from us. Uh, so what are you guys playing this upcoming week? Oh, Friday, Fire Emblem Warriors comes out. Oh, seriously? Yep, it's that close. <gasps> Exciting. Yeah, and then uh, probably Wolverblade. Gotta get through that. Plus all the other games I've bought in the past month that I haven't beat yet. <laughs> um, I'm definitely gonna be playing, I guess, Fire Emblem Warriors, but that comes out on Friday, because I am so stoked for that game. I'm gonna talk so much about it when I get the chance. But um, <laughs> definitely that. I'm going to be putting my hours into Stardew Valley and probably trying to see if I can get a couple more playthroughs of Oxenfree just to get all the different endings that I want. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, and I'm probably not going to get Fire Emblem Warriors because <gasps> I'm, I'm not a massive fan of that genre. <laughs> although enough. I do, although I, I did like Hyrule Warriors, but that was mainly because it was a Zelda thing and I could just button bash my way through it. Yeah. Yeah, maybe later. Uh, but I will be continuing with Wolverblade because as hard as it is I am really enjoying it I am going to try and get through my first playthrough in Oxen Free uh, and then I'm probably going to have a crack at 36 Fragments of Midnight which I bought ages ago and I haven't played it's apparently very short so see how that goes Cool. maybe we'll talk about it next week Okay, everyone, thanks for listening to this episode of Switch Focus Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please, please, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps to get us noticed and on those charts. Otherwise, you can also listen and subscribe on Stitcher, TuneIn, and a variety of other podcast services. Um, we also have a YouTube channel where we regularly upload the first hour of many of the games that we play. I think recently we did a first hour of Wolverblade and The Flame and the Flood. So go check those out, please. And you can follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and at switchfocuspodcast.com for updates, news, and other content. As Andy mentioned earlier, we're going to have a Wolverblade code giveaway that we'll talk about on the website, so please stay tuned for that. Um, and people can also follow us, the great co-hosts, individually. Andy is at Flame Roast Toast, Andrew is at Play Critically, and I'm Ginny at Ginny Woes. 